This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. In a week that has celebrated International Women's Day, it's quite right to reflect back on the women that have had a dramatic influence on Australia. Sue Williams has written about two such women in her book, Elizabeth and Elizabeth. Welcome, Sue. Thanks, Jan. Nice to be here. Let's chat about Elizabeth MacArthur first, as there have been many books written about her recently. Kate Granville wrote A Roommate of Leaves and Michelle Scott Tucker, A Life at the Edge of the World. Why, just briefly, why is Elizabeth MacArthur so significant in Australian history? Well, I think it's interesting because women have always done an enormous amount towards building modern Australia, but often they've always been overshadowed by their husbands. They're the, the men who have always taken the credit. Whereas with Elizabeth MacArthur, it was a little bit different because her husband, John MacArthur, who's often credited with founding the wool industry in Australia, was overseas for long periods. He was over in England for four years, then he was back here, and then he was back over in England again for another eight years, just trying to clear his name from various plots that he'd been involved in. So suddenly it made it there was kind of clear air around Elizabeth MacArthur. We could see the amount of work she'd done and John MacArthur wasn't able to take credit for everything all over again. So we could see that she managed to increase the, the flocks, the numbers of sheep that she was looking after. She managed to start viticulture in Australia and she kind of achieved an enormous amount really. And because her husband wasn't there, he wasn't there to say, no, it was all me. So finally, we could have a woman um, and we could celebrate her in her own right, whereas the other women had to kind of creep out from under the shadows of their husbands often. Well, the other Elizabeth in Elizabeth and Elizabeth is Elizabeth Macquarie. If you've been to Sydney, the Macquarie name is everywhere. Her husband was governor of New South Wales, so we know quite a bit about him. But what was she like? Yeah, well, she's an interesting person. Um, she was 29 um, when she married um, Lachlan Macquarie, which was really old in those days. I mean, she was she was kind of a spinster on the shelf um, that many people would have thought. And she would have been spent her life looking after her sister's children, who had an enormous number of kids, and also looking after her brother's household. But when she met Lachlan Macquarie, I think suddenly her world opened up and he was able to offer to her a much better, bigger life than the one that she was contemplating. So she was very excited about that. But she was also um, really keen on architecture. She designed a path around her own house in the Western Highlands of Scotland. And her uncle had been a really famous architect and famous kind of place maker, we'd call them today, in Scotland. So she was really interested in architecture. And she was also really interested in a fair go, this notion of giving people a second chance which when she came over to Australia, well, New South Wales as it was then, and that was New South Wales, Victoria was a part of New South Wales then, of course. She looked at Sydney and looked at what a mess it was. It was just a, a, a mess of muddy paths and really not very nice buildings. And she really wanted to have an input and try and make some magnificent sandstone buildings and make it a colony of which Britain could be proud. And because she was from the from the Highlands of Scotland, um, a few years before they'd had the Highland clearances where a lot of the sheep, a lot of, lot of the um, small farmers had been taken off their land and to make way for the big sheep graziers. So I think she came over with a real sense of fairness. And when she saw the convicts and how badly they were often treated, 
she started treating them with a kindness that nobody had ever really seen before, um, which was quite remarkable for the time. Let's just jump back a little bit about her decision even to come to New South Wales. Can you read that, just a small paragraph from page 45? When, when Lachlan was offered the post, he wasn't sure whether to take it or not, but she really encouraged him to apply for the governorship. So it, she felt it would be one last adventure for us both, I told him, an experience we could share and an exciting chance to help shape a part of the world we were hearing so much about. It would be a fine legacy for him a fitting finale to his long career of service to his country and a great opportunity to, for me to see something of the world. Mm. Well, the book, Elizabeth and Elizabeth, starts with a journal entry of citing land and, and um, her trepidation. Quote, the smudge on the horizon marks the beginning of our great adventure. And while I will be happy to be on a dry land once more, my heart is racing at the thought of the unknown challenges ahead. But after this journal snippet, the book starts straight into a personal reflection, quote, oh, my God, I'm going to be sick. <laughs> we get alternating chapters from both Elizabeths. Now, Sue Williams, how did you and why did you choose these, this very personal style of writing? Well, I think... Um... It's a historical fiction, so it's the, the book is mostly based in history, but it also has some fiction in there. So I always think history can be kind of a little bit dry and we just get the bones of a story. But with the advent of fiction, you can kind of put some flesh on the bones and some blood and emotion there into the stories. And I wanted us really to identify with this young woman coming over to an unknown land. She had no idea what, what life would be like for her there. I mean, all she knew was that the governor, Governor William Bly, had just been um, ousted in the Rum Rebellion, and she had no idea what was waiting for her. So I kind of felt it would be really nice for us to come on the journey with her so we could see what it would be like through her eyes. Whereas Elizabeth MacArthur is written in the third person because she was much older and she'd already been there for 21 years when Elizabeth Macquarie arrived. So I kind of felt that she would be much better described in the, in the third person, talking to Elizabeth Macquarie and guiding her in, in some ways. When Betsy, you mentioned the puddles and everything around and the unmade roads, but when she arrived in, at the, in Sydney at the government house, it was in complete disrepair. But Betsy has an afternoon tea to thank all the workers. But in doing so, she breaks the so-called rules of the exclusivists? That's right, yes. Oh, right. Because I think at that time, yes, the society was very, very um, divided between the emancipists on the one hand, and they were the people who felt that convicts, once they'd served their sentence, they should be given many of the same rights as the free settlers. Whereas on the other hand, the exclusivists felt that the free settlers had earned their place there. And the convicts, once a convict, always a convict. I mean, often it was because they were sheep farmers or they were farmers and they'd set up their own plots of land and they wanted a source of cheap labour. So they wanted convicts always to be convicts and, and to, to get very little money and possessions. And Elizabeth had um, used convicts to rebuild government house and to, to build some of the gardens, landscape some of the gardens around. And she was so grateful. She invited the convicts to a big dinner at, at government house and uh, it caused so much scandal within society because convicts inside government house you know something like that just never happened before and many people thought 
it was an absolute disgrace. So it didn't get her off to the best possible start either. <laughs> she also won the disapproval of Samuel Marsden. Now, why was he so influential? Yeah, well, he was um, the, the, the highest religious leader and he was known by many of his critics as the flogging parson because he, he was a very stern man and he felt that um, people always had their place. Com he was an exclusivist as well. Convicts were convicts and they were often no good and rotten to the core. And uh, he was a really harsh man mm -hmm. and he had no time really for Betsy and her ideas about um, the emancipation of the, of the convicts. And when she tried to do things for charity, I mean, she was the first patroness of the first charity in Australia, the Benevolent Society. And when she, she set up a home, a new home for female orphans on the banks of the Parramatta River, he, he was really difficult to her and he really tried to create hurdles for her all the time because he felt it just wasn't right for women to be doing these kind of things. You know, if the governor wanted to do something, the governor could, but women were there to be seen and not heard, I think. Well, you mentioned John MacArthur being back in uh, England and it's because of all the ruckus that he caused Governor Bly and, and now continuing to cause Governor Macquarie. Elizabeth didn't think that she would be welcomed to Government House, but it wasn't so. And this friendship develops between Elizabeth MacArthur and Betsy Macquarie. And a quote, we both feel our friendship is too important to be contaminated by the views of our husbands. And when <laughs> Betsy complains that she, all she is really is a hostess, Elizabeth gives the advice, serve your husband, but find your own way. So what does Betsy do? Well, she tries to do a little bit of both, really. I think she, she found it really difficult when she first came because Elizabeth MacArthur was quite conservative. You know, she was, first of all, a mother and a wife. And then she became a really independent sheep farmer with a name of her own. When Betsy Macquarie came to her for advice, her advice was always look after your husband. But then just gradually she started saying, well, actually, there is room for you to do what you want in this colony. We don't have the kind of strict rules that you had in Britain about um, behaviour and about women's place. Really, life here is what you make it. And, and you can forge a, a, a path for yourself as long as you do so a little bit discreetly, because these days women can, can, we can do lots and lots of things and we don't have to actually hide it. We may face hurdles, but in those days, enormous hurdles and you often achieve things behind the scenes. And, it, you know, the saying, there's always a, a great woman behind a man, you know, it's, it's probably much truer in those days, really. So women wouldn't come and um, take credit for many things that would always try and slate it to their husbands. Now, as you mentioned, there's quite an age difference between Betsy and Elizabeth MacArthur, and it, the MacArthurs have got grown-up children. Betsy continues to have miscarriages and blames herself. Elizabeth gives her some advice that even shocked me, Sue Williams. <laughs> so, oh, mm. so is that just storytelling? Is that a bit of the fiction? Well, we don't actually know that they were close friends I and mean, we kind of think if they were good friends they would have had to hide it a little bit because their husbands were such bitter enemies and on different sides of the divide but um, it's, it's well known that um, Governor Macquarie had syphilis 
And it's also well known that Betsy Macquarie had an enormous number of miscarriages. So I delved into the research and discovered that if men do have syphilis, it often is really difficult for women to carry babies to full term. And I talked to a number of experts and they said, well, yes, it's quite possible that it was the syphilis of her husband that, that caused the death of so, the loss of so many of their children. Um, and then I kind of thought, well, Elizabeth MacArthur was in a really good position to, to know that because she was good friends with um, some of the, the men who'd been there for a long time and who'd served with Macquarie. And they had seen him taking mercury pills, which was considered then a, a good cure for syphilis. So many of her, the people that she associated with would know that. So she would most probably know that too. And then it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that she would have told that to Betsy Macquarie, because as you say, poor Betsy Macquarie was blaming herself all the time because Lachlan was desperate for a child. And, and that, was, that seemed to be the one thing that she really couldn't give him. Mm. So that would have given her huge comfort knowing it wasn't necessarily her. In the years of Macquarie's governorship, the extent of his accomplishments were incredible, over 265 public works. Look, things I didn't know, that she may have been the first uh, white woman to cross the Blue Mountains. Yes, that's right. Yeah, because obviously lots of Aboriginal women had been over there before. But yes, yeah, she was the, absolutely the first European woman to, to cross the mountains because there'd been the expedition there to, to discover if there could be a crossing. And then she accompanied um, Governor Macquarie to, to cross the mountains in the first public ceremonial um, journey. It was quite amazing. I mean, she was a very adventurous kind of woman, you know, often on horseback, sometimes on a carriage, but more often riding horses herself. And she did go with Governor Macquarie a lot around the new colony. And they were going to what were the frontier areas in those days, which not really very far at all for us, but it was a long way for them. And she would ride in horseback and he would often worry about her, but she would be fine and she would shrug off his worries. And they would sleep in, in tents. I mean, they had really nice kind of tented beds and things. It wasn't kind of really rough camping at all, but um, she, she proved herself a real match for that. I mean, they went over to um, Tasmania together as well, and she always suffered from terrible seasickness on the journey over to Australia. It was terrible. The journey back was awful. And going over to Tasmania, it was the roughest sea she'd ever seen. So she was really ill most of the time. But when she arrived in Hobart, the, the, the populace really welcomed them. So she managed to kind of smile and, and, and stand up for the first time, really, and, and make a good impression. So she was a, a gutsy woman. She was really admirable. We also found, find out that she was the patroness of the very first horse race meeting in Hyde Park and also why Mrs Macquarie's chair in Sydney is so called. So Elizabeth and Elizabeth is the story of how two women who should have been bitter foes combined their courage and wisdom to wield extraordinary power and influence behind the scenes of a fledging colony. Thank you very much, Sue Williams. No, it's a great pleasure, Jan. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. And now it's David's turn. It is never easy when the second son, the spare heir, has to fill the shoes of the first son. But such is the case in Lorraine Peck's crime thriller, The Second Son. So, Lorraine, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. It's lovely to be here. 
Now, to set the backdrop to this novel, we need a little context. Many of the cultural attitudes and much of the violence we encounter stems from the historic friction between the Croatian and the Serbian communities. There was a lot of trauma in between those two. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney and we had a lot of Yugoslav at our high school. And they were Yugoslavs back then in the 70s, uh, not Serbians, Bosnians and Croatians. And during the 90s, I remember watching the telly and seeing scenes from that war play out on the screen and thinking, well, I know all these people and they look just like us. And it had a real impact on me because I think it was the first time I'd seen a war-torn country where everyone looked just like we did. <laughs> and I wasn't used to seeing that. And I became kind of fascinated with that conflict and how it also played out here in Australia. We had riots at soccer matches. We had Yugoslav clubs breaking in two. And some of my friends from high school were suddenly Serbians and Croatians rather than Yugoslavs. So I found it all fascinating. But there was a lot of violence, uh, quite a number of atrocities committed in that conflict. And that, in many ways, informs the violence we see in The Second Son. That conflict is centuries old. It's, it's not just what happened in the 90s. It's what happened during the Second World War and prior to that and prior to that and prior to that. Uh, the Serbians and the Croatians have never gotten along. And the only reason they managed to create a country called Yugoslavia was because of the charismatic power of Tito, who is referred to in The Second Son as, look, he's a communist dictator, but he's our communist dictator by Branka, the, the Novak family's matriarch. And, and I think that really sums up Tito in, the, uh, in the, the minds of most Croatians and Serbians. The Novak family, who have come to Australia, are actually running a protection racket. And we sort of identify with the Italian version, but can you explain a little about what Milan, the patriarch, is doing and what that community is doing in Australia? It's interesting you bring that up because The Second Son is about a Croatian crime family, the Novaks, working on the streets of Sydney. And part of what they, they do is run a number of fish shops, which are, is their way of laundering the money from the criminal side of the business. And like most organised crime, it's actually really organised. Uh, if you look at a history of organised crime right around the world, you'll find that the, um, the godfathers, the men in charge, could work in any big corporate structure. They're kind of, they're incredibly organised and they rule through fear. They rule through implied violence rather than actually murdering anyone. And I think that's how the Novaks managed to maintain their protection racket and, uh, and how they achieve their aims. We have Johnny Novak, who is actually the second son, but he's now being dragged further into the business after his older brother Ivan is murdered and he's expected to take over 
Ivan's role. And this is where it gets complicated because Johnny is married to Amy, the conventional Australian girl. And this raises a number of interesting issues, including the clash of cultures and attitudes towards gender. Yes, absolutely. Johnny is tasked with stepping up when his elder brother is gunned down. And his father, Milan, who is the godfather of their Croatian crime family, who is his father, is a scary brute of a man. And he's convinced that um, his elder son, Ivan, was gunned down by the Serbian gang. And uh, Johnny is not convinced. It doesn't smell right to him. But he knows that he can't afford within the gang to appear to not take up the challenge, but he knows he needs to find the real killer. Meanwhile, Amy Novak, his wife, a nice middle-class Australian girl who just happened to marry a Croatian gangster, uh, she she's carrying a dark secret of her own. So when I wrote the book, I wrote it first from Johnny's point of view, and it was an action thriller. And Going through early drafts, uh, it was pointed out to me that my female characters were cardboard. So as an exercise, I wrote one scene from Amy's point of view. It still exists in the book, in the early part of the book, where she first meets Johnny Novak. And once I wrote that first scene, she really came alive to me and she took over half the book. She was supposed to marry a nice, you know, uh, a stockbroker or a lawyer or something she married a gangster and Johnny is born into crime I mean how the hell do you get out of that unless it's in a coffin Amy oh, is in fact an outsider because of this she's not truly accepted into the Novak family especially by Milan and also then alienated from her uh, traditional conventional parents who don't necessarily approve of her marriage either. No, absolutely. She's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because the heart wants what the heart wants and she wanted Johnny. And she also didn't want her family's kind of normal life. She wanted something bigger or more exciting in some way. Uh, and so she chose Johnny and she's not a good um, Croatian girl so she doesn't really fit in with the Croatian family they laugh at her when she tries to pronounce the words um, of their language or, or even their recipes and um, she always feels like an outsider because she's tall and very blonde and they're all quite dark and burly and, and it is a quite a patriarchal society of Croatian families uh, you know how does someone who decides on marrying a gangster how do, how do you maintain any kind of control? How do you protect your 10-year-old son? Do you even stick around or do you run? This poses problems for Johnny. He has to live up to his father's expectations. And Milan is very violent in getting what he wants, even from his own children. At the same time, Johnny has to placate Amy because Amy has decided, in fact, to move back to her parents' place, which has implications for the fact that in a traditional patriarchal society, Johnny could lose a little face. Johnny goes about his approach to solving Ivan's murder differently. 
he in fact speaks with Detective Inspector McPherson and he's sort of breaking a code of conduct here. Oh, absolutely. If his father knew that he'd been talking to police about the murder, trying to dig in and find out what they know, he would, well, he would face some severe consequences uh, because it's just not done. You never speak to the police. And so he he's trying to work out who killed Ivan on the side whilst he's trying to keep his father happy by coming up with uh, an idea to distract him from the fact that Amy has left because <laughs> Milan threatens uh, to drag Amy back via a particularly outlandish plan. But it, it just shows Johnny that his time is running out and he, he needs to distract his father. He comes up with a major drug heist in order to do that. So he, he's very torn between his duty to his crime family and um, whether or not he's going to be able to convince Amy not to carry through with her ultimatum to just disappear, run away with uh, Sasha and, and, and Johnny will never see them again. You mention a drug heist which further complicates the issue because now we have a bikey gang getting involved and there is a lot of chaos because, in fact, more than just one code is broken here, members of the family are used as pawns in the game that is taking place. And I'm just wondering how much you can reveal about uh, what takes place here because a lot of criminal codes are now being broken because even the grandmothers get involved. Yeah, it's, it's true because the way it's described in the book, women and children are never involved. They're never touched. So when the women and children are dragged into it, yes, you're right, all sorts of codes are broken. And I, I love the part of the book where Johnny's mother, Branca, stamps her foot and bashes her fist and drinks a shot of rakia and says, no, no, your business has taken one of my sons, Milan. You will not take the other. And uh, she becomes involved with coming up with the next plan of attack, which does involve one of the grandmothers. You're right. The other element, and I think we might have to finish on this one, we, we also have problems with Facebook. Yeah, actually, one of the things my, my husband has always pointed out to me is that if you give away information, you give away power. And uh, he never used any kind of social media uh, because it's just giving away information. And that's how uh, Johnny finds out a whole lot about one of his biggest opponents, Ink Slater. So Facebook has a lot to answer for, especially in this current day <laughs> and age. But it's, a, it's true. We do divulge so much of ourselves on social media and criminals just have to be incredibly careful. If you're c continuously posting uh, photos of yourself and those posts are public, then what's to stop uh, a criminal targeting your house and you know, burgling it, taking your car, 
Well, to find out the answers to all of those questions, who killed, <laughs> who killed Ivan, how Johnny gets out of the situation he's in, whether Johnny and Amy, in fact, get back together again, you need to read The Second Son by Lorraine Peck, and it's a text publishing release. So, Lorraine, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much for having me, David. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.